0: Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show first published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on August 1st of 2023 under the headline, Rajnish's Oregon Dream Ended in Disgrace. It's part four of a five-part story telling the story of Rajneesh Puram, the commune founded by Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his followers in the early 1980s. We are also going to continue on through part five, because part five is quite short. Here we go. Part four, the unraveling. After the election, the new formerly homeless residents of Rajneesh Puram were the most pressing problem for Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his followers. They cost a lot of money to feed and house, and they started fights, and they made trouble. Rajneeshi leaders started out giving them bus tickets home as they had actually promised initially to do, but that got very expensive very fast. After all, it had cost a million bucks to bring them in by busloads. Sending them home one or two at a time on the Greyhound would be many times more than that. So finally, the Rajneeshis gave up, and herding them all aboard buses simply hauled them to downtown Madras and dumped them off. Like bad people do with unwanted puppies and kittens. Social service agencies were forced to take on the task of getting them all home. The Salvation Army alone spent more than $100,000 taking care of them, and other Oregonians dug deep to help as well. One particularly memorable contribution to Oregon's efforts to get the homeless people taken care of came from Portland disc jockeys Dan Clark and Dave Canner at radio station KZOO, although I think they did some moonlighting for KGON as well. Um... Clark & Kanner made a parody version of the 1962 Tommy Rowe classic Sheila, which they called Shut Up Sheila, and released on the B-side of a 45 RPM record made of red vinyl. Proceeds of the record went to help the homeless, and plenty of copies were sold. I am going to insert the audio from the entire song in this recording next. If you don't hear it, it's because I got a cease and desist from Clark & Kenner, or whoever owns the rights right now. I would think it would be under fair use and it would be okay, but, you know, I'm not going to fight a legal fight over it. So if it just skips on to the next thing, you will know that it will be up to you to go on YouTube and look it up. But please do that because it is awesome. Here it is.
1: Sweet little Sheila, Sheila Said she'd never leave me, but the bus won't come around. I'm so doggone stuck in the bounty man. This little girl is loud. You people are ignorant, bigots, ignorant, bigots, ignorant, bigots. You people are ignorant. 110 decibels. Shut up, it's American right to carry megaphones. Freedom of speech includes volume. I'm, not, I'm, not a I'm qualified in public relations. Shut up, I used to work part time as fire alarm.
0: Clark and Kenner were absolutely awesome. I loved listening to those guys in the morning and really anytime. And if any of you guys are Portland people, You may actually remember Hardly Worth It and the KGON Traffic Helicopter, the zany helicopter weather report guy who had a penchant for dropping nuclear bombs on people's houses, supposedly, and the Megaphone Newsreel. The Megaphone Newsreel marches around the continent, across the seven seas, and right into your face. Great stuff. Portland Radio, 1980s. Couldn't beat it. Anyway, back to our story. By early nineteen eighty five, the Rajneesh Puram experiment was a clear failure and was very obviously doomed. Rajneesh's personal secretary, Ma Anand Sheila, whose natural stubbornness continued to lead her into outright stupidity, was trying to take advantage of the homeless problem that she had created by seeking a meeting with Governor Vikatiya in which she hoped to use the crisis as bargaining leverage. This, of course, went nowhere. Folks just don't negotiate with terrorists. But it made it clear to anyone who might not yet have figured it out (laughs) that the Rajneeshis could not be worked with, at least not with Sheila at the helm. And the only solution was going to be to get them out of Oregon. As the investigative walls closed in, Sheila and her staff continued to lash out. They tried to burn down the Wasco County Planning Department office in January 1985 using an elaborate firebug system involving candles and torn up papers, which partially worked and actually did do some damage. They plotted to crash an airplane loaded with explosives into the Wasco County Courthouse, which obviously didn't happen, but it probably wasn't for lack of trying, knowing these people. They even tried a few assassinations. None of these efforts succeeded, but an effort to kill Rajneesh's personal physician, Swami Devaraj, nearly did succeed, one of Sheila's lieutenants jabbed him with a syringe during a Rajneesh festival, injecting him with what she thought would be a lethal dose of adrenaline, and she was nearly right. By the way, the motive for wanting to kill Devaraj was a uh, rumor that Sheila had heard that Rajneesh had asked him to prepare a suicide pill for him if things got really bad he could use it. It is not clear if the rumor was true— And it's super unlikely that any board-certified physician, as Devraj was, in fact, would have complied with this request if it was made. But apparently, Sheila took it seriously. By now, the hostile energy was really affecting the rank-and-file Rajneeshis, and it was causing the group's income to collapse. Remember, these were spiritual seekers who were actually paying to be there and working all day on a volunteer basis— Being surrounded by hard-eyed men with Uzis all the time, being forbidden to run to Madras to do shopping, it made the experience of living at Rajneesh Puram a lot less appealing. And Rajneesh's continuing penchant for buying Rolls Royces. By the end, he had 94 of the things. This added insult to injury. It seems pretty clear that Rajneesh didn't yet understand how bad things had gotten out there. Sheila would come back from battling with state officials and insulting all the other Oregon residents on TV and then have to deal with the oblivious Rajneesh demanding another Rolls-Royce. He really wanted to get into the Guinness Book of World Records as the man who owned the largest fleet of Rolls-Royce automobiles. Finally, at long last realizing the case was hopeless, Sheila and her cabal fled the country, leaving Rajneesh behind to salvage what he might. And Rajneesh did so by basically throwing Sheila under the bus, blaming her alone for all the stupid and illegal activities, and inviting law enforcement to come to Rajneesh Puram to gather the evidence that they would need against her. And yes, they found plenty. They found two laboratories set up to produce biological and chemical agents that would certainly be used as weapons. One of these labs was behind a secret hidden door built into a bookcase and another one was in a cabin way up a canyon where nobody went. They also found some books detailing how bio-attacks might be done. Deadly Substances, and Handbook for Poisoning, and The Perfect Crime and How to Commit It, and Let Me Die Before I Awake. These were some of the titles. Investigators for state and federal agencies and police departments invited to come to Rajneesh Puram and build a case got a real earful. Rajneesh told his followers to be completely frank and open, and they were. The depth and breadth of the criminal misconduct folks learned about astonished them. Perhaps the investigations went a little too well, though, because a few days later Rajneesh started getting less cooperative. Doubtless he was eager to get Sheila prosecuted. He clearly felt betrayed by her. But the investigators were asking other questions as well, and some of them were landing very close to the guru himself. This was especially true with questions of his immigration status. At the same time, some of the law enforcement officers there were getting very nervous about what they were seeing at Rajneeshpuram. By now, the summer of 1985, the Rajneesh Peace Force, as they called it, was bristling with Colt AR-15 rifles and other military-style firearms, including the semi-automatic civilian version of the Uzi submachine gun. Most investigators saw this as mostly theater to make the group look like a harder target, but there were a lot of guns and a lot of ammunition, and the whole compound was arranged very effectively for urban defense. To make matters even more nerve-wracking, Rajneesh had, after Sheila's departure, lifted the red clothing requirement for the group. That meant that if something went horribly wrong, it would be very hard for outsiders to tell friend from foe. Police in the compound, both investigators invited in by Rajneesh and undercover agents posing as followers, started warning darkly that any attempt to arrest Rajneesh would be likely to turn messy and bloody. The worst-case scenario still fresh in everyone's mind was Jonestown, the massacre which had just happened just a few years before this, down in Jonestown, Guyana. Then came the spark that could have blown the whole thing up. The warrant came through. It was a sealed indictment from a court in Portland charging Rajneesh with immigration violations. This presented law enforcement officers with a serious problem. It was now their duty to go and get him. But they would have to be very careful. It was not hard to imagine what the Peace Patrol could potentially do. They had hundreds of innocent non-combatants in their direct control and a huge arsenal at their disposal. They could surround themselves with a human shield of women and children. They could take hostages. Would they? What would they do? Luckily, no one ever found out, because a few days later, Rajneesh boarded a chartered Learjet and flew to North Carolina with a small entourage of his people. This flight has been characterized as an attempt to flee to Bermuda, and it may have been so, but the complete absence of any kind of secrecy, along with the fact that he filed a detailed flight plan with the Federal Aviation Administration and followed it to the letter, suggests that Rajneesh at least half expected to be intercepted. Most likely his departure was motivated by Rajneesh's growing worries that his presence could bring trouble upon his people. In any case, Rajneesh's flight meant that instead of having to invade a heavily armed compound with a huge SWAT team, authorities simply had to dispatch two U.S. Marshal Service officers to the North Carolina airport and pick him up there. Part 5. The Aftermath Well, that was the end of it. Germany extradited Sheila to the U.S. for trial on various charges, including arson, poisoning, and assault. She worked out a deal that included a few years in federal prison, from which she was released in 1988, after which she immediately married a Swiss sannyasin named Urs Bernstiel and left for Switzerland with him. Rajneesh was simply deported after receiving a prison sentence for immigration violations suspended on condition that he leave immediately and not return without the Justice Department's approval. By this time, he was happy to comply. Several other members of Rajneesh Puram's leadership also drew prison time for their various escapades, and the rank-and-file Sannyasins they were left to piece their lives back together as best they could. This was no small thing for most of them. Many had actually sold everything they had and contributed all the proceeds to Rajneeshpuram. Some of them had been disinherited by their families and cut off from their trust funds. They were all going to have to start from the ground up to build a life. And they probably wouldn't be getting any of their money back. The organization had more than $57 million on the books at the start of 1985. By the time of Sheila's flight, nearly all of it had disappeared somewhere. Sheila claimed to be unable to pay $270,000 of her fine to the state of Oregon. Where had all the money gone? Nobody ever figured that out. But if you want to hide money, Switzerland is a great place to do it. And as of the time of this writing, Sheila is still alive and living in Switzerland. Her marriage to Urs Bernstein came about in the nick of time for her, as it made her eligible for Swiss residency and subsequently citizenship. Fresh from the slammer, she skipped out two steps ahead of the law, which actually by this time wanted her to face trial for attempted murder for some of the actual assassination schemes that she had participated in. Bernstein died of AIDS in 1992, leaving Sheila a widow and a Swiss citizen by marriage. Switzerland does not extradite its citizens to face charges in foreign courts, so she is quite safe as long as she stays there in-country. The Rajneeshis were well known for having members marry each other for citizenship reasons going back to the Pune ashram days. Chances are pretty good that Sheila's marriage was at least partly motivated by desire to get her safely out of the U.S. and beyond the reach of extradition. As for Rajneesh, after moving back to India and changing his name to Osho, he died in 1990 of a sudden heart attack at age 58. He left behind more than 650 books, transcriptions of his lectures and discourses, which have since been translated into more than four dozen languages. His stock as a guru has never been higher, and hundreds of thousands of people come to his Osho International Meditation Resort in Pune every year. In Oregon, though, his name is still mud, after all these years. Key sources in this story included works by Eric Kane, Nadine Jelsing, Corey Fry, Les Zeitz, and Bill London. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff, plus a book, including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Facara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now.